Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Lewis Honors College. I think I know most of you. I'm Laura Bryan, the interim dean of the college this year, and thank you for joining us. I know it's weather was getting a little bit nicer. I, I told our speaker I was hoping the sun would go behind the clouds because it seems like when the sun is out, the attendance goes down. So anyway, um, so our uh, just as a reminder, our speaker this afternoon is made possible by the Lewis Honors College Speaker Series. Uh, which was endowed with a gift from Thomas and Janet Lewis and the T.W. Lewis Foundation. And the purpose of this series is to provide live present presentations by world-class authors, philosophers, and thought leaders in order to better to prepare honor students for the challenges and opportunities of life and to educate them regarding uh, a number of American values such as diversity, community engagement, and civic responsibility. Um, today, our speaker will give a presentation about 40 to 45 minutes, and then after the presentation, he's available for Q&A uh, up here. You're welcome to come up and talk with him after, after the talk. So it's a, a delight to introduce our speaker today. Bill Kaufman is the author of 11 books, among them, Dispatches from the Muckdog Gazette, a most affectionate account of a small town's fight to survive, which is a book about his hometown, which won the 2003 National Sense of Place Award from Writers and Books. He also wrote Look Homeward America in Search of Reactionary Radicals and Front, front Porch Anarchists, which the American Library Association named uh, one of the best books of 2006 and won the Andrew Eisenman Writers Award. He also wrote Ain't My America, The Long Noble History of Anti-War Conservatism and Middle American Anti-Imperialism, which Barnes & Noble named one of the best books of 2008. Kaufman also wrote the screenplay for the 2013 feature film titled Copperhead, and his writings have appeared in several publications, including the Wall Street Journal, the Los Angeles Times Book Review, the American Scholar, the American Conservative, and the UK Spectator. He is also the founding editor of the Front Porch Republic and, little known fact, Kaufman lives with his family in native Genesee County, New York, and he's here to tell us about localism, correct, I hope? <laughs> okay, please join me in welcoming Bill Kaufman. Thank you, Dean Bryan, and uh, thanks also to Patricia, Cindy, Sabria, and Chase for their hospitality. The Lewis Honors College is obviously a very special place. It's an honor to be here in Kentucky which produced Elizabeth Maddox Roberts and Robert Penn Warren, authors of two of my favorite novels, and Warren Oates, my all-time favorite actor. And I'm privileged to speak at the alma mater and for many years the academic perch of one of the wisest living Americans, the farmer, poet, novelist, essayist Wendell Berry. You are blessed. You live in a magical place. Pound for pound, Kentucky has one of the most distinguished cultural heritages of any state in the Union. That should be just as much a source of state pride as the record of the basketball team, which I note has zero Kentuckians in the starting line. I'm from near Buffalo, so I'm a Bills fan, and there's nary a local boy on our local pro team. 
I assume a lot of you saw that Bill's Chiefs game two weeks ago. Yeah. <laughs> I'm afraid I'm afflicted with the Western New York fatalism. I knew the Bills were going to blow that game in the last 13 seconds. It's a, that's what a lifetime of following the Buffalo Bills does to a man. You've probably all uh, daydreamed through a break global adventures, climb that ladder of success two rungs at a time, be all that you can be, etc. As a midwinter counter commencement today, I'm going to offer you a bit of advice. Now, not advice, actually, I have an aversion to telling people how to live their lives. But I will suggest an option that runs counter to every popular notion of success in America. And that is go home, stay put. Or as Booker T. Washington phrased, vow that I intend to wax autobiographical. I live in the rural New York County in which I was born and raised, and which is one of four New York counties with more cows than people. Edmund Wilson, one of New York's most eminent men of letters, once said that those of us from my, my neck of the woods, quote, seem very low grade. Not even pretty girls, but pale, gray-eyed, lean, ill-built Polish women and the usual thick, loudish men. One wonders how these men and women can feel enough mutual attraction even to breed more of their unattractive kind, quote, end quote. Uh, well, we do, <laughs> though I had to go to California to find a spouse. Um, by the way, if you've ever seen a photo of Edmund Wilson, wow, he should talk. It's, uh, in 2003, I published a book called Dispatches from the Muck Dog Gazette which is megalomaniacally a memoir about my repatriation to my hometown of Batavia, New York. But it's also about the way that Bataviaville has struggled to maintain a distinct identity, a character, rather than becoming just another formless waddle on the continental blob. I am not from what you would call a book-reading family, but I was lucky in that I grew up with a sense that my place had a history, a culture, an accent all its own, it was ravaged. It had often been mistreated. Outsiders might think it a flavorless dump. But to me, it had pith and soul, and it was a source of endless fascination behind the houses. We'd walk around, and he'd say, you know, that's where the town whore lived. Um, now, the fact that it was my great aunt complicated matters somewhat. But, uh, or uh, the kid in that house had a mental block and couldn't write the number eight. That one always fascinated me. <laughs> or that's the joint of Vinnie the Bookie, a guy who never did a day's work in his life. Parenthetically, a friend of mine who's a musician, also a repatriated native son, he and I say that's our ambition. That when we're old men, we'll be walking down his work in their lives. Well, dare to dream. Anyway, I grew up with the knowledge that Batavia contained the stuff of myth and drama and tragedy and farce. I knew that where I was from mattered, even if the corporate media and social media influencers relentlessly pound into the skulls of every kid who doesn't live in LA or Manhattan or DC the message that your life is risible, it's trivial, why even bother to live if you're not smoking dope with Justin Bieber or talking Dianetics with Tom Cruise. As a girl band from Los Angeles once sang, this town is our town, it is so glamorous. Bet you'd live here if you could and be one of us. Or maybe not. There are sager, kinder spirits to follow. The British writer G.K. Chesterton wrote in his 1904 novel, The Napoleon of Notting Hill, that the patriot, quote, never 
under any circumstances boasts of the largeness of his country, but always and of necessity boasts of the smallness of it, end quote. The smallness of your country. You don't brag about being an earthling. And while I love America, my America, the America in my heart and memory, not the horror show on the TV screen, the very words I'm proud to be an American are the stuff of Muzak, as insincere as it is unlistenable. But to be a Kentuckian, now there's something to be proud of. So allow me to boast a bit about the smallness of my country, of its minor league qualities, for it is the miners with their intimate parks and their blend of the prosaic and the idiosyncratic and their great tolerance of eccentricity that are the true soul of American baseball. The majors are built on home runs, TV timeouts, $40 parking fees, to hell with them. I always felt an intense homesickness no matter where I was. So in 1988, I persuaded my wife Lucine, a Los Angelina, that we should come home to my own small country for what I said would be a one-year experiment. Uh, that year, it turns out, is measured in Old Testament terms, a la Methuselah. I'd worked prior to that as a legislative assistant to the legendary senator and boozy Democratic intellectual Pat Moynihan, and as a magazine editor in D.C. and Southern California, before a vague suspicion that I had nursed since college concretized into a massive and unshakable conviction that a life lived anywhere but in my natal place would be fugitive, evanescent, meaningless. So we went back. According to the popular culture definition of success, going home, doing what I did, is the act of a loser. Home may be where the heart is, but the body is usually long gone. In the typical American success story, the heart is the only organ that is not transplanted. These poisonous assumptions are even embedded in our language. Consider a pair of colloquialisms. He'll go far, approving elders say of promising youngsters, the assumption being that success can be measured in terms of the distance one has traveled from home. If, on the other hand, we save a boy, he's not going anywhere. We are not praising him for his steadfast loyalty, but damning him as an ambitionless sluggard. Those who stay loyal to their little postage stamps of ground are said to be losers. To abandon it, to trash it, to forget it, that's the freeway to American success. We are expected to look away, to prize the distant over the near at hand, to care more about Beverly Hills, California than Beverly, Kentucky, or Baghdad more than our own backyards. Well, absence may make the heart grow fonder, but love's truest, greatest expression, I've come to believe, is immobility, fixity. Yet the mobile rule, leaving home or forsaking home even, is just something every bright-eyed, middle-class American child is expected to do, like wising off to her parents or whining about how nothing ever happens in this hick town of hers. From Warsaw to Walla Walla, this hick town, source of much of what is good about this country, is disappearing into the great American nothingness. We're being taco-belled and tick-tocked out of existence. And I want people to consider what is being lost and to think about the means of regeneration. Much of my work has therefore been a defense of idiosyncrasy, of eccentricity, of, a, of the right of a place like Batavia to be itself, to be different from other places, to have its own pace and language and character, and even its own sins. The men and women who sit atop the pyramid, 
who regulate and even bomb strangers from their Washington offices, who finance and make the films and streaming series and pop songs from which so many of our children learn what is expected of them. They're the most hypermobile class there is. They haven't any ties to a particular place, so they see nothing amiss about a ruling class consisting of, as House Speaker Newt Gingrich once described himself, men from nowhere. A phrase that is both chilling and pathetic, and that applies to the vast majority of those who seek to rule strangers. Contra Gingrich, men from nowhere to be, are to be pitied, not obeyed. Why does this matter? For one thing, the rootlessness of our rulers has political implications. Losing sight of small and precious things, politicians without roots, without a strong identification with specific places, a block, a village, a city, a state, a region, will transfer their loyalties to abstractions, making the world safe for democracy, ridding the world of evil. The cost of such grandiose schemes may be measured in death and taxes. These are reckoned acceptable prices to pay for the achievement of mighty, if ultimately unachievable, abstractions. But democracy was no safer, despite the First World War, and I dare say evil will exist long after U.S. troops come home from the Middle East, if they ever come home. The social consequences of a generic, anonymous America are awful as well. In his novel, Remembering, the Kentuckian, uh, Kentuckian Wendell Berry describes a middle-aged writer, quote, years ago he resigned himself to living in cities. That was what his education was for as his teachers all assumed and he believed. Its purpose was to get him away from home, out of the country, to some place where he could live up to his abilities. He needed an education, and the purpose of an education was to take him away." Quote. Our schools do not offer a major in home. When I was in college a lifetime ago at the University of Rochester, there was not a single course about Rochester, about a culture that had produced George Eastman, Susan B. Anthony, the mature Frederick Douglass, the musical Mangione family. The local was disparaged. Now, even worse, it was ignored. It didn't exist. There was nothing of Rochester in the University of Rochester. What a shame. I've heard that UK, and especially the Lewis Honors College, is different. I hope Kentucky is at its heart. I know it's at Tom Lewis's heart. Because Lexington is more than just an address. Rochester is not just an address. Where you live, where you're from, it's not just a GPS coordinate. Every story you could hope to tell is on those streets and in those fields. What a bounty. Speaking of Rochester reminds me that I befriended, when he was 100 years old, a Rochester novelist and former newspaper columnist named Henry B. W. Clune. I profiled him for the Los Angeles Times Book Review when he released a book of short stories upon hitting the century mark. No writer was ever more deeply embedded in the city than Henry was in Rochester. His father lived in the same boarding house as Susan B. Anthony. His mother was one of 12 employees on George Eastman's first payroll. Henry, who knew Eastman, said that the founder of Kodak once told him that he had never laughed till he was 40 years old. So I guess Rochester is not the mirth city. Henry and I hit it off, and I'd visit him in his den for martinis every week or two. Let me tell you, it's a humbling experience to be drunk under the table by a centenarian. I assumed every visit would be my last, but this went on for half a decade, until he died at 105. 
The last time I saw him, he was abed, awaiting the end. He asked me to walk over to the bookshelf and run my finger along the spines of the dozen or so books he'd published in his lifetime. I did so. He smiled. Not bad, he whispered. I tried. What set me off on this digression was remembering something that Henry said that as I grow older rings truer. He said that one always feels like the same person inside. At 105, he felt 25. But then he said, you look in the mirror and wonder what the hell happened. Appreciate your youth. Once it's gone, it ain't ever coming back. Look, I realize most of you are students, and you won't be spending your lives in Lexington. I'm not asking you to. But I am asking you to consider that Lexington is a place, a place unlike any other. There are people who cherish it. Find out why. We now live five miles north of Batavia in Elba, apt address for an exile. Lucine, my wife, I note with pride, served two terms as our town supervisor. And for all I know, she may have been the highest ranking Armenian-American elected official in America, or at least she will be until the voters of California send Kim Kardashian to the US Senate. I should add that his first husband, my role model, was Mamie Eisenhower. My special project was staying out of the way. Dana Joya, the excellent California poet who by some strike of lightning was once appointed chairman of the National Endowment for the Arts, has a poem in which he walks through a California cemetery. Depressing, treeless, stoneless, griefless places. No wonder people out there want to live forever. The poet hears the voices of the dead, the rootless dead. We lived in places we never knew. We could not name the birds perched on our sill or see the trees we cut down for our view. What we possessed, we always chose to kill. These shades, shades that cast no shadow, ask the poet with a kind of despairing insistence, become the voice of our forgotten places. Teach us the names of what we have destroyed. Teach us the names of what we have destroyed. Is there a more important task in what Gore Vidal called the United States of Amnesia? It is our responsibility, our ennobling duty to those who have gone before and those who will come after to say their names, to tell the stories that attach to those names, to embroider those stories, to make myth of the quotidian, to make poetry of the prosaic. America, turn in and find yourself, urged the Iowa poet Paul Engel. We are going to have to do this on our own, without any help from CNN or Fox or Amazon or Netflix. DIY as the old punk rock ethos went. Do it yourself. And across America, people are doing it themselves. I'll give you an example of something we're doing along those lines. Batavia's not-so-favorite literary son was the 1970s novelist John Gardner, among the last American writers to grow up on a farm. Gardner had something of an ambivalent relationship with his hometown. When asked by an interviewer what function Batavia served in his fiction, he replied that it was, quote, a good symbol of the decline of Western civilization, end quote. It's kind of hard for the Chamber of Commerce to put that on a brochure. It's, uh, Nevertheless, Gardner was ours. <clears throat> As another upstate New York writer, the drunken scamp Frederick Exley once said of his birthplace, Watertown is not in my marrow, it is my marrow. So too with Gardner. 
And so every October, we have an evening of Gardner readings in his favorite diner, the unselfconsciously funky polka dot, outside which now sits our purple and yellow John Gardner bench, upon which you are all invited to sit yourselves when next you are in a fair town. Uh, actually, I learned uh, just before I came, came over to campus today that uh, Leona Pastor, the 94-year-old proprietor of the polka dot, died yesterday. Um, she designed the John Gardner bench. She's a great lady. Um, the older I get, the more dead people I know. I also wrote and played a role in our county's bicentennial play several years ago, a furtively didactic farce. As an actor, I have all the emotional range of Dwayne the Rock Johnson, but few things have ever given me as much satisfaction as doing that play to packed houses, honoring our forebears, making myth of their lives at the same time we tried to celebrate the everyday moments of holiness in their and our lives. These are small person-to-person -person acts, I know, but I don't see how anything larger is practically possible, or should I say desirable. You wind up with a ministry of culture. And as the painter John Sloan said in 1944, sure, it would be fine to have a ministry of the fine arts in this country. Then we'd know where the enemy is. Nobel laureate Bob Dylan's favorite poet, the antebellum South Carolinian Henry Timrod commanded, Poet, if on a lasting fame be bent thy unperturbing hopes, thou wilt not roam too far from thine own happy heart and home. Cling to the lowly earth and be content. Be content. That's easier said than done, I suppose. Or maybe not. Maybe it's easier done than said. America, the cliche goes, is a land of perpetual motion, of restless pioneers striking out for the West, or in our time of computer screen bewitched zombies lighting out for Las Vegas while the mini set in the SUV plays Walking Dead DVDs so that unlike the Jodes, members of this family don't actually have to talk to one another. We are supposedly always moving, never stopping, consumed by what William Cullen Bryant called the vain low strife that makes men mad. And yet the best American writers even those who follow their characters down the raft, on the, down rafts on the Mississippi, even those who title books on the road or you can't go home again, are almost always attached to a place. Not simply a zip code or a URL, but a real individuated place that's different from any other place on earth. Sarah Orne Jewett in South Berwick, Maine, Sinclair Lewis in Minnesota, Wendell Berry in Henry County, Kentucky, Thoreau and Concord. The list goes on and on and takes in every state, every region, and if it doesn't, alas, include every hill and vale in our lovely land, well, that's all the more invitation for young writers to stake their claims. I seem to have uh, strayed from autobiography into sermonizing. Perhaps it is just as well. Uh, false memory syndrome is the occupational hazard of the memoirist. When I was writing dispatches from the Muckdog Gazette, I seem to recall my high school days as a blur of four touchdown games passionate couplings with a head cheerleader. But I think I was remembering someone else's past. It's such a temptation to fall into despair when we look at the world around us. A gig economy. People staggering around with their faces half hidden. Government at all levels servicing the likes of Amazon, while coffee shops and bars and churches, the places that give our lives texture and depth and meaning, get shut down a coarse, trashy popular culture, a bloated militaristic empire seemingly engaged in perpetual war, 
Our country is lost, adrift. But there are signposts pointing us home. A lot of the people I've written about over the years, Dorothy Day, Eugene McCarthy, Wendell Berry, Carolyn Chute, Grant Wood, Edward Abbey, have this in common. They walked away from power, away from the soulless capitals in which power is concentrated, and they went home or they made new homes in places far from the bright lights. They didn't become hermits. They stayed engaged with the world, but they didn't whore out for power. These people learned, as I learned, that healthy, life-giving parochialism exists in even the most dispirited or unprepossessing places, and that we, or at least I, can only really ever love the familiar. Even a justified anger or rage requires the anchorage of love, else it becomes exhausting and pointless hatred. If you want to change the world, you've got to do it within your own ambit, within your own circle of love. Anything grander, more far-reaching, and you're dealing with people not as flesh and blood, but as constituents, as soldiers, as abstractions. You wind up shipping them off to war or herding them into housing projects, always for their own good, of course. Now, perhaps this speaks to the smallness of my imagination, the meagerness, the minginess of my spirit, but I can't comprehend, let alone love, the world. To me, the hope, the only hope of America lies in her small places, whether rural or urban or suburban, places where life can be lived on a human scale. I was very much struck by an incident a dozen or so years ago when we spent a day in Columbus, Mississippi, hometown of Tennessee Williams, a city of beautiful antebellum homes untouched by the war. First place we stopped was a little restaurant. I am a hopeful romantic and I expected to find Vatic old men, white and black, whittling on benches, laconic loafers playing checkers, trawling wittily on courthouse steps, and tomboyish Neil Harper Lee hiding in the bushes, taking it all down. Not quite. The first Colombian we encountered was a sullen youth from teenage central casting, playing the usual dreck on what we used to call a boombox. We entered the eatery and were seated behind four ladies with lovely and mellifluous Mississippi accents. They spent the next half hour recounting the plot of the previous night's episode of Friends, that smuttily witless show by which archaeologists of the 23rd century will condemn our civilization. <laughs> Sorry if there are any Friends fans out there. <laughs> I wanted to confront them, to plead with them. <clears throat> Look, here you are daughters of a poor, reviled state, which is nevertheless one of the culturally richest states in the Union. Your home gave us the Delta Blues, Eudora Welty, Shelby Foote, William Faulkner, Muddy Waters, and yet you consume the commercial products of cocaine-addled greedheads in Manhattan and Los Angeles, people who hate your guts, who despise you as ignorant crackers and stupid rednecks. Get off your knees, Mississippi. There are new Robert Johnsons and Eudora Welties in your midst. Support them. Look inward. Look homeward. With a little help, the flowers in your own backyard will bloom a thousand times more brilliantly than anything on your high-definition TV set. Well, I didn't say this, um, being a polite New Yorker, but I wanted to. The tools of our revivification are at our feet. If we just look down, look around, 
Every Main Street and Oak Street and Martin Luther King Boulevard deserves its own record, its own poem. So where are they? Maybe everything that dies someday comes back, <clears throat> sang a pop star who meant a lot to me in my boyhood. Or as Wendell Berry says, practice resurrection. I'll give you an example. For many years, I was vice president of the Batavia Muckdogs, one of the only community-owned teams in professional baseball. There is no ownership setup more roundly detested by the profit-minded speculators who dominate pro sports. We teetered on the financial ledge, the poor sister of the New York Penn League, and it wore on us. Sometimes during a game, I would stare at one of the faithful, maybe Alice, a lifelong fan whose bandana uh, covered a head balded by cancer treatments, or Mark, a retarded older man whose imagination, like mine, was coterminous with Dwyer Stadium's boundaries. And I would think how crushed he or she would be if we lost our team. As it happens, we lost Alice and Mark before we lost the team. But last year, the dead souls who run Major League Baseball terminated the New York Penn League. They just up and killed it as part of a bloodbath that reduced the number of minor league baseball teams from 160 to 120. I'm glad to see that the Lexington legends live on, but even those surviving six-score franchises are grim-visaged today, for minor league baseball as a quasi-independent entity has been abolished, its relics locked into the fetid antechambers of MLB. A circuit that was born in the Hotel Richmond in Batavia in 1939 died in Manhattan's oppressive Time Life Building in the COVID winter of 2021. But for once, the joke was on them. The Batavia Muckdogs were the men they couldn't hang. We resurfaced in the sillily named but fine quality perfect game collegiate baseball league, an amateur summer division for college ball players, including guys from UK who are considered potential pro prospects. We're no longer community owned, but the new proprietors hail from Elmira, New York, hometown of Mark Twain's wife, Livy. This is a good sign, since reports of our death, like Twain's, were greatly exaggerated. Unlike the pros, the PGCBL encourages teams to sign a local lad or two. Last year, the reborn muckdogs included the son of a fellow I used to play ball with, and also the grandson of friends. I detect faint but discernible echoes of the town baseball leagues that flourished all across America into the 1940s, with their fierce place-based rivalries. This spirit endures today in modified form at the high school level, although the Cold War-driven consolidation of school districts into multi-town agglomerations dulled the edges and muted the passions. Enraged as I was by the massacre of the miners, I'm starting to think that ours was the promotion by demotion. For what is true in life is true in baseball, is true in politics, localize, decentralize, break down the overly large and inhuman into a smaller and more human scale. I mourn the death of the minors, but perhaps it presages the death of the majors, we can hope, or at least the rebirth of baseball in organized forms that respect the local, the unruly, the unregimented. There is life after major league affiliated baseball, just as there will be life after the collapse of the American empire. The 2022 Muckdogs begin their season in early June, I'll be there in the third base bleachers, surrounded by friends and family, and the ghosts of all those, like Alice and Mark, who've come before. When I look out over the crowd, I see the dead as well as the living. 
alas, it seems as if it did sometimes play shortstop for our team, but the presence of those who've gone before us, it's not an annoyance or a grimly obligatory pull. It hallows the places we live. I'll tell you about one such ghost. <clears throat> His name was Dennis Bowler. The last time I saw Dennis was on an early September night during one of those melancholy late-season games when the chill of summer's end is in the air. And even though I haven't darkened a classroom door for decades, the thought of school lowers over me like a prison sentence. Dennis had been sick a couple of weeks with a mystery ailment, but even at half speed, Dennis was irrepressible. See you tomorrow night, we both said as he left the third base bleachers in the 12th inning for the drive home to Gasport. It didn't work out that way. Dennis made it home that night and dropped dead of a heart attack. If ever you were minding your own business at a Western New York ballpark or high school gym and you were buttonholed by a fast-talking man telling you everything he knew about nuclear physics, British Columbia, or how to make a baseball bat, it was Dennis Bowler. He loved to talk. He couldn't shut up. He talked more than any person I've ever met, often about his ancestors or life in Niagara County. For a frenetic man, he was content in his place, fully at home. His stories included such local characters as the unfortunately named Israel Izzy Human, for whom Dennis had an overwhelming sympathy. He hated meanness and cruelty. I suspect he had been teased and mocked more than once, and he repaid the world not in bitterness but in kindness. Dennis loved those names and numbers that spice our lives, but that we depreciate with the name Trivia. He'd ask you to name Harry Truman's vice president, Kentucky's Alvin Barkley, or Hank Greenberg's lifetime home run total, 331. He could recite the starting lineup of every girls softball team in the Genesee Region League. The day Dennis turned 60, the Muck Dogs announcer asked him to stand up and take a bow. Dennis was so busy yakking that he never heard the chorus of happy birthday. Even then he looked 40 and acted like a coltish boy. He would race teenagers for foul balls. When he got one, he'd hold it aloft, beaming like a prospector who just panned a gold nugget. Then he'd give it to a child. Dennis resided in the family homestead on Ridge Road, fruit basket of the Northeast. He lived alone and drove a rusting jalopy distinguished by his varying shades of blue. Now and then he'd stop by my parents' house to pour water down his chronically leaky radiator. He farmed as many acres as he could and sold his produce at a roadside stand. He brought corn to the games and gave it away. He also painted houses, taught hunter safety courses, drove a tractor for Becker Farms, and in winter he substituted at local schools. He was the muck-spattered embodiment of civil society. One abiding memory of Dennis. In his last summer, he brought a telescope to Dwyer Stadium. Not to check out the chicks. Rather, Mars was at its closest approach in millennia, so he trained the scope on the red planet and the moon, and we took our peaks. Dennis was so utterly without guile so joyful, so ravenous for knowledge. He lacked entirely the internal break that keeps most people from bringing telescopes to baseball games. And good for him. During that game, Dennis ran over to the first base bleachers and taped a napkin to the fence. He dashed back, pointed the telescope at the napkin, and asked our then 10-year-old daughter to take a look. It read, hi, Gretel. He was such a sweet, innocent man, poor in person, rich in spirit. Sometimes I think of Dennis keeling over in his bathroom, perhaps at 3 a.m., the soul's midnight, as Ray Bradbury called it. But more often I think of him bounding up the bleacher steps two at a time, 
talking about Western Canada, running after foul balls, telling Gretel corny jokes, smiling, always smiling. It's been over a dozen years, and I suspect he's still talking St. Peter's ear off. Dennis's life <clears throat> meant nothing to the people who run this country. He was a loser, a non-entity. But to those who cherish the smallness of their country, the simple face-to-face -face interactions that give our lives heft and meaning, Dennis is the last American hero. Well, I don't want to end on a downer note, so I'll tell you two other brief baseball stories. A decade or so ago, we misconceived the idea of baseball poetry night, or what I like to call shoving culture down fans' throats night. I detest the constant noise at modern sporting events, the walk-up songs, the between-inning excerpts from moronic pop and rap songs, such a plummet from the sublime music of my youth, uh, the Velvet Underground, the Captain and Tineo, whatever. <laughs> anyway, on Baseball Poetry Night, the team president, the local museum director, our daughter and I, filled the between-innings air of a contest between the Batavia Muck Dogs and the Auburn Doubledays with recited odes to the American game by Charles Bukowski, Grantland Rice, Tom Clark, and other bards of the ball field. My favorite was Bukowski's Betting on the Muse, which begins, Jimmy Fox died an alcoholic in a Skid Row hotel room. I thought of it as a cautionary tale for the boys. The whole thing went over as disastrously as you'd expect. My Batavia, God bless her, is poetical enough in my imagination but as for poetry appreciation, let's just say with it when the PA announcer asked the fans, do you want another poem or a song? The shouts of song rivaled the New Testament crowd's cry of free Barabbas. <laughs> you can't always get what you want, uh, but I've gotten what I need. Or I think of a recent season when the team unwisely scheduled Bill Kaufman Day. I thought every day was Bill Kaufman day, but uh, I had to throw out the first pitch that night. I shambled out to the mound, told the crowd over the mic that my brother had promised to buy everyone in the stands a beer if I threw a strike, and I threw a fastball right down the pipe. I think the radar gun clocked it in the mid-80s. Um, others estimated the low 40s, <laughs> somewhere between there, I think. That night, our daughter Gretel and her friend Megan sang the national anthem melodiously. During the seventh inning stretch, now unfortunately scored in so many ballparks by that empty cloud of bombast, God bless America, the girls ignored post-9-11 protocol and instead sang my favorite, America the Beautiful. Gretel and Megan weren't past, oh, beautiful, when a heckler started in from the beer deck. Wrong song, wrong song. The girls got a kick out of it. How many singers have ever been jeered during America the Beautiful? As fouled up as things are, uh, you're lucky to be coming of age at this moment, so pregnant with possibilities. For something is a stir. Your fellow Kentuckian Wendell Berry has noted that hopeful signs are sprouting everywhere. Life-giving, life-affirming movements from community-supported agriculture to alternatives in education, often infused with the old punk rock DIY spirit. Barry calls this a redemptive moment, though he acknowledges, quote, in terms of standing and influence, it is hardly a side at all. 
It doesn't have a significant political presence. It is virtually unrepresented in our state and federal governments. Most of its concerns are not on the agenda of either major party, end quote, but it's out here and growing. Each of us needs a home, a place where we feel connected, feel a part of something bigger than just ourselves. Seldom does this home look like paradise. Oft times, as with my Batavia, perhaps with your patch of the earth, home has been bent, folded, spindled, and mutilated, almost out of existence, self-mutilated even. Home can seem to outsiders an unlovable place. But why are we here if not to love the unlovable, the damaged, the marred, each other? I know what it's like to be 18 and to think I'm going to shake the dust of this hick town off my heels and see the world. I also know what it's like to have a deep and profound attachment to a place, to never want to leave it. Lexington, Bowling Green, Batavia. Our world is healthy only insofar as these places mean something. I saw the distinct identity, the meaning of my own place fading, and that's why I raised my voice on behalf of the little America. The America not of the home run, but of the sacrifice bun. The America of the human scale, the only scale that can really measure a person's or a country's worth. Before I flew out here, I was listening to an old Phil Oaks song with the line, I would be in exile now, but everywhere is the same. Well, it's not. Not yet. Not with all these beautiful American places, including yours, deserving to be written, painted, sung, restored, lived in, loved. So go to it. Thanks for listening. Long live Lexington and long live Kentucky. Thank you very much. You're welcome.